Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, so we're all here in the Jungle Studio, with the exception of one Ben Wittes, who... I feel like if I hear the rustling of palm trees and luau's in the background, the crashing and of birds, waves and on birds. a beach. Ben's in Maui. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. Ben, even. I am. Oh, is that your tropical? Sitting is that your on actual jungle. I'm the sitting on the now? porch of my hotel room with an espresso and uh, the sun rising. And the Pacific Ocean uh, lapping in the distance. Loser. Ben, if I have really ever told you how much I really dislike you right at this moment. <laughs> you know, uh, on the other hand, I have a very long flight tonight to get home. <laughs> Poor but you're here baby. For us. You're here for You took time out of this uh, moment in paradise to record a podcast. I also really question your choices. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's very early in the morning here. I wouldn't otherwise be on the beach. Oh, did you, you got to watch a Hawaiian sunrise. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Thanks. We can't wait till you're home. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Ben Sucks and Also a Lot of News Happened edition. I'm Shane Harris, reporter who has not gone to Hawaii in a very long time. I just want to say that I dissent from this from this uh, episode title. <laughs> you can dissent all you want as you enjoy your Nespresso and your pina colada. <laughs> We're not resentful at all back here in slushy Washington. Uh, I am here in the jungle studio uh, with my good friend Tamara Coffin with us. Ben and his parakeets are off in Maui. <laughs> <laughs> and we are joined as well in the studio here uh, by Shannon Tagawa Mercer, the managing editor of Lawfare. Hi, Shannon. Hi, hello. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have a lot, so much to get to. When we were putting the show together, it was really like I, did, I think it was kind of overload. Actually, I'm not really sure we had a, like a sense of like where do we even begin with this week? Yeah, where do we begin? It was a week. It's I, like a Barbara Streisand song. I have somebody <laughs> asked me the other day. They're like, "It's Monday, right?" And I'm like, "I don't even remember days anymore. It's just day." <laughs> Just day. Uh, This week on the podcast, special counsel Robert Mueller zeroes in on a mysterious Lebanese businessman. Like just when you thought Lafayette Roos was all Roos. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's, Lebanese and Emirati. (laughs) The food is getting Putting the Lebanon and and Emiratis back in Lafayette Roos. It's pretty amazing. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, Also, what do elections in Italy pretend for the future of democracy in Europe and North Korea signals it's willing to cut a deal with the United States. Um, let us start with uh, uh, this mysterious Lebanese businessman, George Nader, Lebanese-American, at least that's what he says, <laughs> uh, who it has been reported now, the Times broke this story and uh, we uh, <coughs> followed up with it at the Post, uh, that he has both been questioned by uh, the special counsel, has testified to the grand jury, uh, and also is cooperating with this investigation. Uh, and it, it seems that from the reporting so far, uh, the, the the crux of this issue, and we're going to kind of, I'm going to kick to you first to kind of start trying to help us unpack some of this, is that Robert Mueller wants to know what Nader knows about money coming from foreign sources. It looks principally like the United Arab Emirates that may have gone into the Trump campaign or may have been inappropriately funneled uh, to Trump land, uh, maybe even after the inauguration and when Trump was in office. So, Ben, kind of get us started here with just what, what, we've, what we know so far and the significance of the fact that this person uh, is testifying before the grand jury as well. Right. So I think the first and most important aspect of the story is not anything about the substance of what it reveals about uh, George Nader's um, activities. It's the fact that he appears to be a cooperating witness who was last week in front of a grand jury. And I... um, You know, I I don't want to speculate about the... 
uh, criminal activity of people who have not been indicted, but I do think that that is a hard fact pattern to reconcile with anything other than that some kind of indictment is uh, likely coming down the pike pretty soon. And the reason is that, uh, you know, Mueller has proceeded mostly so far not by uh, using the grand jury as his uh, investigative instrument, but by FBI and prosecutor interviews. And, uh, you know, he seems to have, at least as best as I can tell, used the grand jury only when he means to bring an indictment or when he needs to compel somebody to cooperate, you know, to produce material. And here we know it's not a compulsion issue, be- assuming the Times is correct, um, because the witness is a, co- is a cooperating witness. And that does suggest to me that there is some kind of case being presented to the grand jury for uh, possible indictment. Now, that, of course, raises the question of what the subject matter of such an indictment would be and as well as against whom it would be. And, you know, honestly, from the stories, that's a little bit hard to figure out. Um, It does seem to involve uh, foreign money. It seems to involve, um, uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, either Emirati or perhaps Russian uh, uh, influence of some kind. But the exact parameters of what's being looked at are, uh, you know, there's a meeting in the Seychelles, there's some meetings with the transition, uh, but it's actually hard to figure out exactly what the conduct under suspicion is. Right. Tomorrow, go ahead. So I, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me in this is that we don't know exactly what the allegations of wrongdoing may be here, um, but that What's becoming increasingly clear is that people who were working with the Trump campaign and for the Trump campaign were very clearly simultaneously pursuing political interests, maybe with guidance from the top of the campaign, maybe not, and their own personal financial interests. George Nader was doing business with the Emiratis and uh, brokering these uh, security, private security contracts. And, and knew uh, the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. Right. And and based on that was, you know, bringing these connections for the, for the Trump campaign. So you don't know, was he pleasing himself? Was he pleasing the Trump campaign? Was he pleasing his Emirati patron or all three at once? Similarly, you know, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, was clearly engaged in self-dealing kinds of activities um, in terms of his private consulting business at the same time that he was working on the Trump campaign. And it's just shocking to me I mean, setting aside the concerns about criminality and abuse of the power of the presidency itself, it's shocking to me that Trump and his his organization would allow all these leeches to uh, to be a huge part of their political effort. These are people who were not in it for for Donald Trump, first and foremost. They were always looking out for themselves at the same time. And, you know, did they... Did Trump allow this because he wasn't aware of it, in which case he's a dupe? Or did he allow it because he doesn't care, because to him that's normal, which is horrifying? Um, But setting aside the specifics of the Mueller investigation, that's the thing that really came through to me from this George Nader story. Yeah, and also something that came through to me was these other connections he has to people more precisely in the Trump orbit. So uh, in addition to... Uh, his connections to the UAE uh, and, and and the family there. Uh, he also worked for a time with Eric Prince uh, at Blackwater. Brother yeah. of Betsy DeVos, the education <laughs> Betsy secretary. DeVos, 
who also is a close ally of the White House, uh, who has pitched his private security plan for Afghanistan to White House officials. And on the op-ed page of the New York Times. Right. Uh, And was at this meeting in the Seychelles where he met with a uh, Russian individual uh, who runs a um, development investment fund. Uh, And the Times reported that uh, Nader was both at that meeting and was representing the UAE or working for the UAE on behalf of it. So you have all of these kinds of you know, various connections that he has to international organizations, the Trump world. I mean, Shannon, I guess, like, at some point, you know, I find this to be true as a reporter. I mean, your spidey sense starts to go off a little bit. But when you start lining the, all these dots up, you know, I guess it could, the question is, do you believe in coincidence? I mean, there could be a whole other explanation for this, but nobody's really proffered one other than Eric Prince saying, like, oh, I met this guy, but it was over a beer and nothing happened. I mean, everyone's explanation is like, oh, no, 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 we don't remember. There was nothing here. Bob Mueller certainly thinks that there must be something there. Yeah, I certainly am not in the prediction game. And and connecting the dots is a little bit difficult from our position without having any more information. But you're absolutely right. Characters like Eric Prince immediately uh, make sort of the sirens go off in your head, right? These are unsavory characters, like Tammy mentioned, and they do seem distinctly self-interested. So I agree with you. All of this sort of from the periphery seems suspect. Ben, if we're... Again, we're kind of like reading tea leaves here a little bit. Um, but Nader goes before the grand jury. He presumably has information to reveal about, Let's, if, if the Times reporting is correct and if our, I think our reporting is correct too. But um, where, I mean, what should we be looking for in terms of the kinds of potential crimes that are even implicated here? I mean, so far we've been talking about uh, people pleading guilty to lying to the FBI. Um Based on the evidence that you've seen, what it, what are some of the potential crimes or actions that, that could have been committed here that he might know something about, do you think? So I have very limited idea of the answer to that question. And I would, you know, out of uh, a certain uh, uh, reluctance to speculate about criminal conduct by unindicted people, I'd be sort of, uh, you know, reticent about doing that. Uh, Look, that said, certain things jump out at you uh, about these meetings, which is why I think reporters are interested in them, other than the fact that Mueller is interested in them. One is that, you know, you are talking about uh, foreign money. Uh, you're talking about um, contacts with foreign parties, with business interests, and the mingling of public business with, you know, private business potentially, and that, of course, raises all kinds of possibility uh, of, uh, you know, in, impropriety and graft and that sort of thing. Uh, In addition, let's be frank, uh, there are Russians involved during the transition, right? And any time you have uh, Bob Mueller interested in meetings between people representing the transition and and Russians, uh, everybody's antenna is going to perk up for uh, obvious reasons related to La Faire Russe. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, there have uh, there have been a set of uh, concerns about uh, Jared Kushner and uh, financiers uh, for his family's business and meetings uh, that may involve the public business and sort of th- that set of issues. And this raises some of those concerns. Yeah, so I, can I, I, yeah, go ahead, Tammy. Sorry. So it, there was a, a a claim in the New York Times article, if I'm remembering correctly, that Mueller is looking at the possibility that the Emiratis directed money to the Trump campaign. In other words, illegal foreign contributions to an American political campaign, which which would be a whole new right set of of uh, criminal activity than, than we'd been discussing before, but the New York Times didn't really say how they knew that this was a concern, or clearly it's some information that must have come from George Nader or for the, from the investigation of George Nader, but we don't know what the fact 
base is. I think the other thing that's really significant here is that we've all spent the past year worrying about Russian influence and Russian intervention, but we now have two separate storylines involving Emirati interference. One, um, apparently, Emirati government officials being uh, overheard by uh, U.S. intelligence talking about the possibility of influencing Jared Kushner um, because of his financial troubles. And now this is a separate track that's related to Emirati influence on the Trump campaign itself, not Jared Kushner. So now all of a sudden we, you know, this is a whole different vector of foreign influence. And, and just to make it even more kind of Byzantine, could flag two reports from this week from NBC and The Intercept, or was it, maybe it was last week, uh, that the Kushner companies had on a number of occasions sought investment from either uh, the Qatari government or Qatari individuals, uh, principally in this property we've talked about a lot, 666 Fifth Avenue, which is kind of underwater. Uh, those didn't materialize. And then uh, a month or so after the last entreaty, according to The Intercept, uh, the administration supported the blockade of Qatar. Uh, and there's a lot, obviously, the backdrop of that, too, is Jared's become very close with the Emiratis and the Saudis. So now there's this whole other element that's at least being raised, questioned, I don't think the reporting is definitive on this, of whether or not there's some kind of retribution or when the Kushners couldn't get money from Qatar, this changed their their policy attitude. Again, there's no proof of that. But I think that the suspicion that is swirling in all of this – oh, and by the way, emails are being leaked uh, that were sent by the UAE ambassador – um, to Washington, who do you think leaked those emails? I wonder. Uh, there's, there's the you know, Lafare Russe is kind of becoming, what's the what's the French word for the Gulf? <laughs> you know, it's taking on a whole other Le dimension. Lafare Gulf, right? <laughs> That's got to be it. It's totally that. I mean, it's really, but I mean, it's kind of extraordinary how in this short period of time, you know, what we thought was essentially an investigation by Bob Mueller that was principally focused on Russian meddling, now is adding all of these different elements that may have a Russian sort of ribbon running through it, but appear also to be, uh, um, you know, issues related to, to other countries. I mean, and, and just on, like, maybe as a last question to close this out, Ben, given that and how that th- th- this, this may be, let's just say, maybe uh, uh, spreading uh, or taking on a different dimension, this investigation, does that politically present any kind of problem for Mueller, we've already seen uh, before Trump throwing up warning flags and red lines about don't look into my finances, Republicans in Congress saying this thing needs to be focused on Russia and nothing else. You know, now we're talking about Emiratis, Qataris, Saudis. Uh, is that a risk for Mueller? Well, of course, it's a risk in the sense that the further you stray from the core of La Faire Russe, which is uh, you know, Russian interference in the 2016 election and possible U.S. side uh, coordination slash collaboration slash collusion with that, the more politically vulnerable you are to the charge of what we used to call independent councilitis or, uh, you know, kind of mission creep associated with being a special counsel. Um, and that, of course, leads to the charge of uh, kind of pursuing a political vendetta against the targets rather than, you know, kind of dispassionate law enforcement. On the other hand, I think that possibility is relatively muted here. Um, for one thing, Mueller, in his actual indictments, has been extremely close to the core of the uh, Russia matter, right? He's indicted people for lying to the investigation about their interactions with with Russian agents or cutouts, and he's indicted people uh, for uh, Russians for interference in the election, and he's indicted people for, um, uh, you know, in Manafort and Gates's case for a massive money laundering operation. That seems to involve, I mean, Ukrainian, but uh, uh, and and uh, by extension, uh, Putin uh, uh, Putin friendly money from from uh, you know Ukraine's uh, Putin friendly dictator. Uh, so I don't think he's especially vulnerable to that. And in addition, as we've 
pointed out, it's not really clear whether this is an Emirati thing or a hybrid Emirati-Russia thing or, um, or what. And then finally, just, you know, you know, Mueller's mandate does include uh, criminal matters that arise in the course of conducting the investigation. And so things are reasonably within it if Mueller and Rod Rosenstein uh, together conclude that they are within it. And we've had no sign from Rod Rosenstein that he's that he thinks Mueller is, you know, kind of off the reservation at this point. Can I add, though, I think that there might not be a political problem for Mueller, but it is a political problem for Washington if it turns out that there's that there was some kind of Emirati attempt to influence our presidential election or a presidential candidate who became the president of the United States. I mean, it's always awkward when... Um, when friendly countries interfere in unseemly ways in one another's politics, um, we we expect it from adversaries and we can deal with it more easily politically if it's from adversaries. But, you know, if this really pans out that there was some Emirati uh, coordinated effort, you know, it, it will create political challenges for Democrats and Republicans in Washington the same way as when the Israelis were seen, you know, when uh, when uh, Jonathan Pollard was revealed as spying on behalf of Israel uh, on the United States. That's such a great point. Yeah, the, the, the shockwaves that would emanate from this would be, I mean, disruptive doesn't is almost a polite term for how right i mean this is a major partner for the united states in the region it's it is a military in the region that the united states has invested heavily in building especially their special forces and counterterrorism capabilities um we work with them not only in the gulf itself but in other places around the region it's it would be hugely disruptive Qataris are over there in the corner being like, we're still your friends. We told you not to trust those bad people. Nothing but trouble. Oh, man. Well, I'll go back and call this the Lafayre Gulf edition. <laughs> Hashtag Qatar is your friend. Yeah. Oh, um, man. What a world. All right. Let's uh, spin with me around the globe as we go to Italy now. <laughs> How's that for a transition? <laughs> Where friends and enemies have different meanings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there were some elections in Italy, uh, and Shannon is going to tell us WTF on that one. Um, Shannon, first, bring Mm -hmm. everybody up to speed on what happened in the elections in Italy. And, you know, the the, the thing we really want to unpack here is to what extent that this is a kind of bellwether or a harbinger for the populism and anti-establishment kind of movement or parties, mm-hmm. not just in Italy, Wait, but in Europe. But might uh, it foreshadow them? Could it portend? Could it portend? It, it might. Is it a canary in the coal mine? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was excellent. Um, so as we all know, Italian elections happened earlier this week. They seem and, to happen all the time, by the way. <laughs> they do seem to happen. European, the parliamentary system sort of lend themselves to this. I think in the States, we're less used to the constant sort of invocation of the electoral system. Right. But so the Italian elections happened um, and the results were somewhat surprising. There had been some foreshadowing beforehand, but I think the magnitude of the results for each party in this election caught people, especially Italians, off guard. Um, so to take a step back... It's a parliamentary system. There are a number of different parties. I spoke to an Italian friend this morning. I have it on good authority that I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of every single party. Awesome. Um, Great. So the populist party that's emerged um, over the last roughly a decade in Italy is uh, called the Movimento Cinque Stelle, or the 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 Five Star Party. I don't even speak Italian. I did the, you know, for our audience, I, you know, Held up five fingers. Yeah. So yes. Just wanted to clarify Cinque. Um, so the Populist Party's been around since 2009. Um, a lot of people have painted them as sort of this burgeoning populist movement. But the truth is, even before Brexit in 2013, they won about 25% of the vote in the Italian parliament. So they've been increasing their influence. Um, but it was shocking that this week they won about 32% of the vote. Um That said, none of the parties that I'm about to describe won enough uh, of the vote to actually put together a ruling government. So what you're going to end up seeing over the next couple weeks or maybe the next couple days is sort of an aggressive number of negotiations between parties to form a coalition government. Um, 
quickly go through the parties, the Democratic Party uh, or the Democrat Party was the party that was ruling Italy beforehand. They saw a decrease of 6% in their vote. So they came out with 18%. La Lega, which is the northern sort of extreme right party, uh, came out with 17%. And that was a huge coup. They came they came up in the ranks about 13%. Um, And then Forza, which is Berlusconi's party. And there was a significant amount of discussion about Berlusconi coming up in, in power again. He's back, baby. He's back. He's not bunga, back. Bunga, bunga. <laughs> um, while that would have provided us with a lot of entertainment, yeah. uh, Forza came out below La Lega and Forza's central right. So this was sort of like a showdown of the right parties. Sure. Um, and so what we have here now is uh, a number of – so Five Star and the, Dem- and the Democrats and Lega are the top three parties – um, five star is ideologically, or they actually call themselves post ideological. Oh, um, so they're sort of hard to pin down. <laughs> I think that portends <laughs> ideology. Yeah, right, right. There, there must be some ideology there. Um, so multi ideology. <laughs> It's, it's hard to figure out exactly where they come out on some issues. They've been pro-NATO at some points. They've been anti-NATO at other points. They've been anti-immigration in some instances. Um, they are largely just anti-establishment, right? So they're like the manifestation of discontent okay. with the common or the status quo so not so much parties. left or right, just anti-establishment. Anti-establishment. Yeah. Tea Party of Italy. Yeah, like a little bit of like a Bernie Tea Party mixture. It, so anyway, there there is a conglomeration of these types of people who are on the fringes who don't want to see what's been going on in Italy continue and they've uh, they've coalesced into the Five Star Party. And then immediately below the Five Star Party is the party they sort of see as the one perhaps most, most closely aligned with them is La Lega, which is an extreme right party. So they've done a number of things that I think would raise hairs for raise hairs on, on the arms of many people. Um, they've uh, like advocated for um, segregation in buses in the north of Italy. The La Lega Party leader uh, has uh, praised Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, Marine Le Pen has called him a friend. So there are lots of things about the La Lega party that are slightly more concretely troubling than the Five Star Party. Um, and so in the coalition government negotiations, there are going to be some more high likelihood results. Um, Five Star and La Lega, if they if sort of join together, are going to be the Eurosceptic anti-establishment bloc, and they will have more than 50% of the vote in order to form a majority government. That's one of the higher likelihood results. The next likely likely result is Five Star Forza and La Lega, because Forza and La Lega are both sort of right-wing parties. Um, and that would put us in a very similar position, right? The majority of that coalition would be populist. Um, there would be some sort of more establishment pull with Forza, but it would still be largely anti-establishment and definitely Eurosceptic. So it sounds like I mean, what this portends then, I mean, if we're getting at that question, is <clears throat> this rising anti-populism is certainly the way that the governing coalition of Italy is going, right? I mean, well, it's... Isn't it so, also possible, though, that that these two, Five Star and, and the League, could end up unable to agree on sharing power because yes. they both think that they are the voice of the populist anti-establishment yes. movement. Neither of them wants to cede that to the other. So you could see Berlusconi mm-hmm. coming back, mm-hmm. right, by building a coalition with one of them. Yeah, that is that is possible. Um, although the more likely outcome, considering the politics of the parties at this stage, is that if they don't form a coalition between the two of them, there will be no coalition and there will be another set of elections. So that re- set of re-election will, happen, will have to happen before March 23rd or in or around March 23rd when Parliament uh, comes together again. And Shannon, but we might see another round. Shannon, why is it inconceivable that the five-star movement would form a coalition with uh, the uh, center-left parties that have, you know, just lost a bunch of seats uh, in a kind of sort of populist mainline coalition. Well, it's because of their anti-establishment bent. The truth is that they've... So so there are sort of two theories about why the vote came out the way that it did. And I don't see them as misaligned. So so I'll just sort of present both of them. One is this growing Euroscepticism, namely because of the position that Italy has been put in over the course of the last couple of years. Italy's not in a great economic place. It has unemployment rates of, you know, as high as 57% in the South for the youth. Um, and it's 
seen an influx of immigration. So there's Euroscepticism because they feel like they haven't gotten the best deal within the EU. But there's also this anti-establishment bent domestically because they don't feel like the center-left parties have governed Italy all that well. So it's inconceivable, namely because that's part of their platform, that this was just that, you know, they were rising against these parties. I mean, similarly, Berlusconi is a symbol of past governance for them. He's the establishment. He's the establishment. Wow. And he's the strongest establishment Italy's seen. <laughs> right. So I guess it was David Brooks who was arguing that that's why Italy presents a portrait of what the United States might look like after Donald Trump. So if Donald Trump is our Berlusconi, that becomes old hat and it sort of raises the bar for the next level of anti-establishment mm. politics. I, I mean, it strikes me that um, ultimately – what will roll back this kind of reflexive anti-establishment populism is to have it in government and have it fail, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so it's interesting to me that, you know, you see out of the German elections where we also saw a far-right party make a lot of gains, but not enough to to put it in power. And ultimately, basically everybody else united to kind of keep those guys on the margins. Um, but the result is that you're going to have a government that probably won't be able to do very much because it's so unwieldy and fractious. And in Italy, it sounds like what you're suggesting is that we're going to get something that's much more kind of a pure test of populism in in action, populism in power. We'll see. Um, so, so that's a the point that you make. Uh, bringing us back to sort of the macro picture of Europe is a really good one, right? We've we've seen this play out in sort of a minor way in Germany in the elections in which you're right, the, the extremist parties are marginalized in France when Macron's victory was celebrated as a similar sort of coup. Um, and over time, you see what really happens is compromise, right? Like there's because the EU is so intermingled and their fates, especially Italy's the third largest economy in the EU, um, and their fates are so interwoven, the the need to compromise over time becomes apparent, right? And so there there is a, a theory that there will be moderation, even if we see this pure test of populism, that it will become the practical need for Italy to contend with the French-German alignment and moderate because their policy. Because their only alternative is to pull out of the union, which would be economically devastating. Italy. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be <laughs> it would be economically devastating. I and and the French German alliance, especially after the German elections, um, will over the course of the next we hope four years, um, bolster at the very least bolster, if not increase, the number of sort of uh, euro consolidation policies. So there's the sort of euro banking policies and France has put together a few more financial policies that would further integrate European countries. So Italy would be right on the edge of that. And I would I'm interested to see what their incentives are. So I so let me just say as an international relations geek, if the structures of the European Union succeed in taming these populist forces in Italy, um, that will be a really interesting manifestation of like liberal institutionalism in action, right? It it definitely would be, um, but it is a big if, right? This is a huge. <laughs> I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be too pessimistic, but this is this was a very surprising result. I mean, for the first time, you have more than fifty percent of Italy's population voting for uh, Eurosceptic anti-immigration for the blow populist. it all up, yeah, faction. Wow. Yeah. I, I would just like to point out that one possibility is that Italian politics don't matter very much. <laughs> no, not, not, not because of... It's a different you know, kind of Euroscepticism. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't mean this as a snide point at all, but that, you know, Italy, in fact, does not have the clout to buck the EU. Um, and so... And it has a long history of uh, electoral turmoil that turns out not to matter a great deal. Uh, and so voting for populist movements in Italy is a little bit of a freebie because, in fact, Italy will, uh, will be governed by uh, the constraints that the EU allows it. Yeah, and I, I think that's a fair point. I didn't mean to be too strident in my claims. I do think, however, uh, the Italian election is more of sort of a 
signaling. It has signaling value to people. Um, and that's where it becomes a little bit more troubling. So not that I want to encourage reading sort of causation into correlation here, but when you see things like Brexit and then the closeness with which the AFD came to, to getting a huge proportion of the German vote, and now the AFD positioned as the opposition party against Angela Merkel, um, one wonders, right? One sort of sees the unfolding of populist tensions across the EU. It wouldn't just be Italy if you were to sort of read the tea leaves in the most pessimistic way. Okay. Um, come with me as we spin around the globe again. <laughs> I'm just dumb, dumb with transitions this week. <laughs> You're all out of transitions. They're, they're useless. <laughs> we're just okay. we're lurching from one thing to another. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're lurching. What fresh hell is this? Um, <clears throat> that should be the addition name. Right. <laughs> I'm going to go back and amend this title three times. Uh, so North Korea uh, has signaled that it is willing to have uh, talks with South Korea and possibly even being open to a discussion with the United States about halting its nuclear weapons program. Um, it, Bullshit. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the podcast <laughs> Ben just skipping right to the end <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we've talked a lot on the podcast about you know the history the, the, the repeated failures uh, to negotiate with North Korea this is not something that is uh, um, unique to this administration or the previous one and it's something that's affected all of them and, and then North Korea clearly uh, uh, announcing, I guess, maybe it's too strong a word, but making, I think, very clear that security guarantees are what it wants um, uh, if it is going to suspend this program. Let me turn to, to our resident diplomat first. A, tomorrow, like, what do you, A, what do you make of this messaging? I mean, there is a, a, there's a way to read it the way Ben so succinctly did. Uh, or is this potentially some new kind of opening? And we should all keep in mind, of course, that what's different this time is in the last rounds of negotiations that the U.S. had with North Korea, they did not have uh, developed ICBMs that were capable of delivering uh, or at least hitting targets in the United States and possibly putting a nuke on an American city. We now think they're either there or pretty darn close to there. Right. So, look, as with most developments related to North Korea, there are the optimists and the pessimists um, in interpreting this. I, I think that the willingness to consider talks um, is, in a tactical sense, new. Um, and I think, if nothing else, the Trump administration will claim, they inevitably will claim, but they may claim with a certain degree of justice that their policy of pressure and their working with China um, brought this oh, change about. Oh, they've claimed I mean, they've right. outright claimed it, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas the South, you know, the South Koreans would say it's their own overtures that have made this possible, and it may be the combination of the two. Um, and I think that this... Um, yeah. This is something that uh, that we need to consider in light of all the criticism of the Trump administration for driving a wedge between itself and South Korea or between itself and Japan and South Korea on this issue. It may be that the good cop, bad cop routine actually um, produced a little bit of a result here. Now, how much of a result is the question? So the South, of course, has every incentive to magnify the significance of what its envoys we're told when they visited North Korea. Um, and so I don't think we really yet know what this opening means. We've also seen just in the 24 hours or so since the news broke, the North Koreans indicating that what they mean by security guarantees uh, includes American denuclearization, which is, of course, a hoary demand of North Koreans in negotiations with the United States. As in we remove our nuclear weapons from Or from at nearby. least from the theater, yes. Yeah. Um, so the subs all go away. Right. Yeah. And that's a non-starter. Right. Um, so is this, you know, is this a meaningful opening or is it a gambit? We still don't know. It is clearly um, a change and probably a response um, to some degree of pressure uh, under the new sanctions and the relative focus of international attention on the issue. Um, and so the real question, I think, now is, number one, 
can the United States in its current diplomatically denuded state actually capitalize on this opening by pursuing diplomatic engagements with the intensity and seriousness and rigorousness that would be required to produce a real a really meaningful outcome. And secondly, do we know what we want? And that goes to your point, Shane, about the moment that we're in now. You know, um, I think in the past, and we've talked about this on the show, a lot of American strategy has been about attempting to delay and deny technical advantages in the North Korean nuclear program that would enable them to directly threaten the United States. And if they haven't yet crossed that threshold of transcontinental ICBM, ICBM with a nuclear warhead, um, they are basically standing at the threshold. And so the margin, <laughs> the marginal value of achieving an agreement is really a question right now. Uh, what we've seen in the past, even when agreements were concluded, is that the North Koreans um, kind of slipped across that threshold without our noticing or, or, you know, halted the agreement and slipped across very quickly, and we weren't able to prevent them. And so even if we think we're still on the right side in the sense that they don't have this capability yet, there's very, very little reason to believe that an agreement in and of itself would prevent them from achieving that capability. That puts North Korea in a very different place than, for example, Iran, which was still a good ways away from a functional nuclear weapon. Um, and I think it, it makes the value of a North Korean agreement much more controversial proposition politically. And that would be true for any administration, but particularly for one that has taken such a hardline view. Ben, do you want to elaborate on your uh, your skeptical argument? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's a very simple uh, issue, honestly, which is that uh, the North Koreans periodically decide to engage in protracted negotiations uh, and dangle uh, major concessions like denuclearization. Uh, they, there has never been a, even a grain of a signal of good faith in any of it. And it's always, at least in my experience uh, looking at it, it's always a delaying tactic designed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, either extort or buy some uh, food aid or, um, or uh, relaxed international environment in order to then uh, turn around and, you know, release new missiles, have new uh, nuclear capability. I've never detected the slightest indication that they're actually willing to contemplate denuclearization uh, because nuclear weapons are honestly the thing that uh, keeps them, or one of the things that keeps them viable. Uh, and so I don't, uh, I can't imagine why anyone would take this seriously. So I guess the question, Ben, is what do you think the U.S., the Chinese, others in the international community should do in response to this apparent overture? I mean, do you think that it should just be ignored or do you think that, it, you know, there should be a demand for unilateral denuclearization by the North Koreans before we're willing to sit at the table with them? I mean, what's the alternative to to walking through the store and seeing what happens? Well, so the question of whether you should sit down with them is a, a tactical question about what you think you can get out of it. Um, and I'm open to the possibility that there's some, uh, that there's some benefit achievable here that we should, uh, pursue. I'm just not open to the possibility that that benefit is the grand strategic, uh, benefit of a denuclearized, uh, North Korea, because I just don't believe that that's, that they have any interest in pursuing that. And so, um, and I don't think there's any combination of guarantees that we could conceivably give them that they would, uh, that would make that worth it to them. And so I, you know, I'm open to the possibility that the process of having some, com uh, you know, some dialogue will lower tensions and that there may be benefits that accrue as a result of that. Uh, but I, uh, I think we need to have our eyes wide open about what the 
you know, what the what the benefits and risks of that are. So because I'm the resident diplomat for rational security, so named by Shane Harris, I'll just say that, wow, Ben, it sounds like you and I really don't disagree. <laughs> um, I, I think actually that what you said amounts to, to about the same thing that I said. And I think that the key unanswered question then is what is it exactly that the United States government hopes to achieve out of negotiations with North Korea? What does it want? And, uh, and that's something that a deeply incoherent administration that always has problems on messaging is going to have to figure out how to communicate clearly, both to the public and to the North Koreans. You know, one, one possible answer to that question, and this is an area where North Korean interests and our interests might actually weirdly coincide, is if they are by playing for time. Um, and I think when they want to negotiate, they're usually playing for time in some way. Uh, you know, we also want to slow down the missile program. And if one of the ways that they play for time is by having a protracted missile conversation and they have to do a lot less testing in that period in order for the uh, for their negotiating posture to look remotely plausible, that's not the craziest, uh, you know, short-term or medium-term benefit, right? You know, so we'll have a lot fewer missile tests and that will lower tensions. I, what the end game of that is, I don't purport to know. Shannon? Yeah, I had a question for you, Tammy, which is, you mentioned that the government's going to have to put forward a coherent policy, and that seems less and less likely. It, if recollection serves, we don't exactly have a coherent team for this. Who in the government would be addressing these negotiations appropriately? Do you have a picture of sort of who those people are? What a fantastic question, because I think um, not only do we not have an ambassador in South Korea, because Victor Cha's uh, reported likely nomination was yanked over policy disagreements with the White House, um, you know, not only are we lacking senior personnel in the State Department, but um, just among the principals who are in place, there have been some tensions and disagreements. Uh, there's been a lot of reported tension between the White House on the one hand and the State Department and Defense Department on the other, Tillerson and Mattis, uh, over North Korea policy, over the president's request to develop military options for a possible preemptive strike or just a, a nose bloodying kind of message to North Korea and um, and so if Trump wants to assign, you know, one person who's empowered to represent him uh, to work this issue with the North Koreans, it's not at all clear to me who that would be. And when you're talking about n nuclear negotiations in particular, it's really crucial to have the technical expertise on the team. Um, you cannot do this in generalities. You've got to do it in specifics. And so all of the infrastructure of American diplomacy that has been degraded over the last year plus by the Trump administration is precisely what's needed at the present moment. That and presidential authority and those two things just don't seem to go together in this administration. All right. Let's move on to uh, object lessons. Um, Shannon, you're a guest. Do you want to go first with your object? Sure. Um, so despite the fact that there was so much news this week, what I saw too little coverage of was something that I find sort of really impressive. Uh, Barbara Streisand apparently cloned her dog. Did yes. you hear about this? She Wait, more dog. than once, right? She has two clones. Two clones. Ew. Their names are Miss Violet. One. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Their names are Miss Violet and Miss Scarlet. Um, and she, uh, there was some sort of, a, there was like a cloning process in Texas. There's a company that does this for your pets. And they came out with like a litter of five clones. Including Miss Indigo and Miss Cyan, but they didn't make it. It was, well, one of them really didn't make it, Tammy. Oh, <laughs> the runt of the litter so didn't creepy. make it. But I do think like in 2013, this would have been a huge piece yeah, of news for exactly. this week. Everyone would have been talking about it and or cloning their dogs. Right. And no one's doing that. I'm very disappointed. That in this, the security dimensions of this are profound, particularly not just because Barbara Streisand can start creating a puppy army. Cloning technology. Barbara Streisand, <laughs> who has... I want to say that the, the, the security implications are profound, particularly for dogs. 
I'm tomorrow. I'm glad sorry. to have brought a new flavor to the podcast <laughs> coverage. <laughs> I would just like to assure my two dogs that I'm not going to clone either of you when you die. You are one of a kind, and I love you both. Barbara Streisand, who has a mall in her basement. What? Yeah, she has a shopping mall in her basement. Barbara Streisand, clearly, like, actually, like, a secret, like, bunker person. She has a security <laughs> rationale, too. She's like, no, I'm not going out shopping. I'm going to do my <laughs> shopping right, right here. here. There's literally a mall in the basement. What else do you know about Barbara Streisand Way that I don't know? not enough. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow, what's your object? Um, so last week, we talked about my trip to Saudi Arabia and uh, so my object this week is a little slideshow that I put together on the Brookings website. Uh, if you're curious about what the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia looks like, especially now that they're issuing tourist visas, you too can go uh, wearing your black abaya if you're female. Um, or not. Or not. <laughs> and, and taking the consequences. Uh, anyway, if you're curious about, for a look inside Saudi Arabia, you can take a look at our slideshow which is now on the brookings website and i will post the link on the show page sounds great i was more thinking like i would go and wear the abaya you know it would look good on you yeah there might be consequences for that in ksa <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that brings us to the end of the podcast rational security is a production of lawfare you can find our show page someplace probably in hawaii bastard yeah the uh it's it's all in hawaii now <laughs> <laughs> you can find us uh, what <laughs> anyone who's anyone is in hawaii shane apparently it's only that's us true. losers who apparently are that's here. exactly right he's probably there with barbara streisand and her two clones <laughs> uh you can find us on facebook you can follow us on twitter at ratl security whenever you download the podcast please be sure to leave a rating and a review it really helps us and we are going to read some of these great reviews on a near future episode i think they've been awesome and really helpful and encouraging and you're spreading the word thank you very much our audio engineer this week is matthew Kahn. the show is produced and edited by jen patia howell music this week by george nader and the two princes <laughs> Retro. what's that ben can we just call it can we just call it nader and the princes Nader and the Princes? Yeah. I like the two princes, That's though, like because... Prince and the Revolution. Ah. I like Prince and the Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that kind of band. Don't worry, princes. Oh. We're not talking about revolution. I don't think Sophia Yam would want to be in any of these bands. <laughs> I think she'd just steal you know, well clear. She might do some, she might do some uh, mean Spin Doctors covers, though. Yeah, I think definitely. she could do it. Yeah. On behalf of my friends, uh, Ben Wittes is still my friend. Tomorrow, Coffin Wittes and our guest, Shannon Tagabo-Mercer. I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 